Welcome to Navigating Education, the podcast. The podcast that can help educators from around the world navigate not only the present, but also the future. Through discussions of instruction, ed tech, policy, and school leadership, we're here to connect with you and educators from around the world to help them amplify student learning for the betterment of our students and their future. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 67 of Navigating Education, the podcast. This is our third season, second episode. And I'm here to talk about Edu Protocols tonight with Dr. Scott Petrie. And I'm really excited as we've met in the past at the San Diego um, Fall Conference, as well as during the Spring Q Conference at Meet the Author. And I've been following uh, Scott on social media for about probably a year and a half, two years now. And just I, as a, as a social studies teacher, got my uh, degree in political science. I went to law school for a little bit before I jumped into education. So uh, really fascinating stuff that he's doing. Saw a number of his uh, presentations and uh, just really excited to chat because he's doing some fascinating stuff uh, with social studies, edgy protocols. And, you know, it's one of those things where I wish I had him as a teacher when I was in college or in uh, high school, learning all of um, things about history and, and government. So Scott, welcome. Why, thank you for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. Um, I'm blushing. So I, I do want to say, though, that we also share, I, I went to school in San Diego. I think University of San Diego is where I got my bachelor's degree from. <laughs> I enjoyed my time at Alcala Park there up overlooking Mission Bay. And even though, gosh, I think I moved to L.A. in 1996, uh, 11 years I spent down in San Diego. It truly is America's finest city, and I'm jealous. Uh, <laughs> I am I remember how I got here, but I'm not sure I, I would do it again if I could go back. I know it's it's a city that's hard to to, to leave, but um, definitely uh, it's I love uh, USD's campus. You got a fantastic view. It's it's gorgeous. Um, yeah, it's a it's a fantastic place. I went to Point Loma for my undergrad, so similar type of you know experience on the coast and just uh, just enjoying the the fine weather. So. Tell us, you know, you know, after your time at USD, so how did you get to the point where you're currently at now? You got a, a, a PhD along the way and um, you've been teaching, I think it presumably in LA Unified for quite 22 years. Yeah. So I, I almost think I know what I'm doing now. <laughs> um, so uh, let's see. I grew up on the in the great state of New Hampshire. And when I finished high school, I told my parents I didn't want to go to college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't want to waste the money. And I knew one person in California. His name's Rick McKinney, a good lifelong friend. And I called him up and I said, dude, guess who's coming to live on your couch? And we, uh, we tried getting an apartment. I was still 17 at the time, so no one would rent to us. And I swear to God, we looked at every flea bag apartment from like Oceanside to San Ysidro. And we finally found a place in the area of Carlsbad, uh, right overlooking the freeway. 
Um, and I, I settled in there. I got a job at a restaurant. I, I swung a hammer for a few years. I swept up a beauty shop after it closed. I did all sorts of jobs. And then I figured, hey, wait a second, college, you just drink beer, right? I, I can do that. And I went to Miracosta College there in Oceanside. And after a couple of years, I transferred into University of San Diego. And one of my favorite professors there was a guy named Dr. Gary Gray. And he got me hooked on working on political campaigns. I got nine units of college credit being an intern uh, at the time. Uh, Pete Wilson had been a very popular mayor of San Diego. He had then gone on to represent California as a U.S. senator, and he worked, uh, uh, he ran for governor in, in the late 80s, early 90s, and I got like three, uh, three classes out of that internship. And it was really cool because I was just a punk kid that didn't know anybody. And all of a sudden, I'm on private planes with a U.S. senator and setting up the advanced stuff. And uh, then he won. And I still had a year to go in school. Everybody else that worked on the campaign, they all got jobs up in Sacramento. I stayed behind because I hadn't finished college yet. And so... Um, I, I had a great job at a golf course down there. I worked in go the golf course industry for seven or eight years. And then actually I won a screenwriting contest and the agent that had uh, responded um, said, I, I can't help you unless you live in LA. I can't work with you unless you live in LA. And so I quit my job. I got hired. Uh, I, I got a job at Disney. I worked there another eight years in their corporate alliances division and their research and development division. I'm a totally failed screenwriter, which means <laughs> I wrote about 11 screenplays. I wrote a book on screenwriting. I tell you, if I had a dollar for every screenplay I optioned for a dollar, I'd be sitting right here with a good, I don't know, 10 or $15 in my pocket. <laughs> uh, then I became a teacher when the dot-com bubble burst. And that was right around 2001, 2002. And so here I am in LA Unified. I work at a place called John F. Kennedy High School. And it's uh, in Granada Hills, which is kind of the suburbs of the San Fernando Valley for you geography types. It's where the 405 and the 118 meet. And, um, you know, I always kind of laugh because uh, I am a history teacher, yet I took zero history classes in college. I was all <laughs> science, and I thought I'd be a writing teacher. I thought I'd be an English teacher because I had written semi-professionally. And then when I brought in my paperwork, they said, nope, political science, that means you're a history teacher. Uh, here you go. Here's the book. Just stay a week ahead of the kids. And uh, lo and behold, I've bluffed my way through it for the last 22 years. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating how uh, your journey, you've done a lot. And uh, it's kind of funny how when a lot of people just, you know, wind up in education for, you know, there's a lot of different reasons. And uh, it's your, your story is truly definitely interesting and definitely relates to, to many. And I, it, I can tell you, too, is uh, going into my first year teaching, most of my classes were in 
political science as an undergrad and then teaching uh, history, world history and uh, U.S. history. And I'll be honest, I got AP scores on those. So I never took those in college. So really, <laughs> I was going all the way back to uh, high school and staying a couple weeks ahead of students. So um, but, you know, at the end of the day, content's not the entire point of it. It's a lot of the skill base. So I, it's really interesting to now talk about you know, the strategy of teaching these skills and using kind of the content as a vehicle. So, you know, when did you start using, uh, you know, edge edu- edu- protocols and, you know, discuss with our audience a little bit about what they are. And then, you know, when did you start using them? Sure. So I, um, gosh, I think it was around 2015 or 2016. Uh, it was right, right about the time the first book came out. And I had met I had met John as part of the Q organization. I'd met John Carippo because he did this awesome event for history teachers that was like a sleepover on the USS Hornet up in Alameda Bay, up in San Francisco or Oakland or wherever that is, Alameda. Um, And it was like this uh, Q rock star for history teachers. And so I want to say we had about 120 people. We all slept on the boat uh, and we had like classes in the ready rooms. And it was Ryan O'Donnell, Amanda Sandoval, Stacey Young. They were the rock stars and they were giving awesome history lessons, awesome content. Uh, and that was really before Edu Protocols were out. So that's how John kind of sucked me into the cult of Q. And then I started going to uh, the Q conferences. Usually there's one in the fall and there's one in the spring and following all these really cool, innovative history teachers that were using tech in fantastic ways. And then the first Edu Protocols book came out and my friend Connie Mamura, who is a uh, eighth grade history, uh, history, social science and PE teacher here at Arcadia Unified in Los Angeles. She said, oh, I read John's book. Do you want to present on Cyber Sandwich? And I said, of course I do. Let's do it. And I immediately went and Amazon the book that I had not read. And I looked up what the heck is a cyber sandwich. And then two weeks later, Connie and I were presenting it. Um, And over the years, I had just kind of kept in touch. What I love about Twitter and social, I I shouldn't say all social media, because I really only do the Twitter. Um, But there is a robust social studies community on Twitter that does the SS chat right now at 5 p.m. on Mondays. Um, And I should credit uh, the awesome history techie Liz Ramos for getting me into teacher Twitter because I ignored it the entire time I was working on my doctorate. I was like, I'm too important and busy working on this giant dissertation that nobody's ever going to read. I can't be bothered with Twitter and send out these tiny little tweets that nobody reads. Uh, so I ignored it for like five years while I was getting my doctorate. And then she, I finished it and she's like, oh, come on, Scott, you got to get on Twitter now. You have no excuse. And I did. And it totally did open up this incredible world of risk-taking and proactive teachers that aren't afraid to try new things. And it's just been my experience that those aren't always the teachers that are at your school site. When you work in K-12 education and you're at a school for X number of years, 
a lot of times those folks aren't the most creative or innovative or willing to try new things. So if you're that type of person, sometimes you got to go out beyond that, beyond your district PD offerings. You've got to kind of seek out your own experiences. So through seeking out those experiences, I ran into the cult of Q. Then it kind of pivoted into the cult of Edu protocols. And now I think we're on book seven. I think they've sold about 70,000 copies of all the various books. There's two coming out this summer. Um, there's about 500,000 visitors to the website every year. There's about 1,000 members of the Edge of Protocols Plus community that uh, we do a, a monthly social studies show. Uh, all the authors have their own shows that are available to people that subscribe to that community. And then we do, you know, I would say three or four events a year where they're Edge of Protocol Academies. Uh, I'm excited to do one this summer in Notre Dame in Indiana. I've never been there. I want to recreate that scene from Rudy on the football field with John Carippo and Adam Moeller. They're going to lift me up on their shoulders. It's going to be very exciting. And then we do another one in Laguna Beach, the last week of July, I think the 26th and 27th. And that's always at this wonderful El Moro Elementary School right on the Coast Highway overlooking the ocean. And, uh, you know, when I'm not thinking about moving back to San Diego, I certainly hope I become a millionaire and can afford to live in that area because Laguna Beach, uh, it's like the French Riviera right here in California. So um, how did I start using Edge Protocols in my class? You know, I started off one or two. And uh, if John Carippo was here, he would be the first to tell you that I use Edge Protocols wrong because I don't listen to the people giving directions and I don't read the directions. So I just look at the template and I see this is how I'm going to use it. So pretty much every way I've started using an edge protocol has been wrong, but they've worked for me. So I've kind of muddled way, my way through it and it's worked just fine. Um, my, my favorite, I think, is the Iron Chef edge protocol. And the reason I like the Iron Chef Edge Protocol is because I am a closeted English teacher masquerading as a history teacher. And I make my students read these things called books. <laughs> and I'll tell you, these high school students after the pandemic with their cell phones and their digital devices, they are very confused. They don't know where to plug this thing in. I have to show them that the words are on the inside. <laughs> they don't need to recharge the battery. And it takes a lot of getting used to. Um, and if you are a, a nonfiction history fan, uh, what you will find when you start reading a, a nonfiction history book is those authors like to impress you by showing you how they know every historical reference and they know every person in your main character's orbit. So literally, when you read a nonfiction history book, you're introduced to about 100 people in the first 100 pages. And most of my students don't know the historical references. They don't have the background for it. They don't know uh, Jesse Jackson was part of Martin Luther King's entourage in the 60s. They just think, who's Jesse Jackson? That's a familiar name. What, why should I know him? 
Um, so I started using the Iron Chef and I set it up as a jigsaw. And before the kids would start reading the book, I would say, here's a list of 30 or so people that you're going to meet in this book. Before you start reading, I want you to Google them. And then you're going to make a prediction for your secret ingredient as to is this going to be an important person in the book or is this just a bit character that maybe shows up on a couple pages and you never see him again. And so some books have indexes. They make this very easy. Some books do not. Uh, and it makes it considerably harder. But I used it as a way to get kids kind of motivated to read the actual book. And now they have this student-generated uh, deck where they can go back and say, oh, wait a second, who is this guy again? And they can look him up and, oh, yeah, he's also on page 52. Oh, yeah, he's married to this person. And it just kind of gives them sort of a student-created study guide. And they're not as insecure about the historical references they don't understand. It gives them a good framework for kind of moving through the book and understanding which characters are going to be important and which characters are not as important. Definitely. And I, and I, I love the, the notion of, you know, the, the jigsaw strategy. And then, then with regards to uh, a lot of what you're trying to do is, is that, you know, without any prior knowledge, how are you going to know more about that particular event person or, you know, those inferences that they're able to create. So I think that is, you know, fantastic. And I, and I think now just even more than ever uh, before in a world now of generative AI, I think really that if you have, you know, prior knowledge is king. I, I just wrote mm -hmm. that recently. Uh, prior knowledge is king. If you have no prior knowledge, you're not going to be able to get the answers that you want or be able to evaluate uh, any sort of outputs. Um, so it's, uh, you know, I think that's great that you're, you're really focusing on that. And um, I, I, I love um, that strategy that you're doing. So speaking of, you know, that one strategy, um, what other examples do you have of memorable lessons of you using maybe that particular Iron Chef strategy or uh, another one that you like to, uh, to generally use? Sure. So I, I've been teaching AP research for the last two years. And that's an elective where the students have to have taken six AP classes and gotten a three or better on the exams. Then they take the prerequisite, which is called AP seminar. And during AP research, they have to come up with the idea of a huge project, experiment, independent research project, essentially. And over the years, my students have had some really good ones. Uh, I had a kid who went to four local beaches and he dug up sand crabs at each beach and he measured the toxicity levels in the sand and he tried to prove some sort of correlation between the level of toxins in the sand and the crab's reproduction rates in four different locations. Um, I had another girl who did an amazing children's hospital internship and they worked in a lab trying to turn on and off a switch in a, an infant's stomach that would inhibit some sort of leukemia or stomach cancer gene. And there are certain kids that they tell you about their project idea and you just know, oh my God, that's a five. 
You, you don't have to help them. You don't have to do anything for them. You just have to get out of their way. And they're going to run with this thing for the whole year. And at the culmination of the year, they're supposed to turn in a 6,000-word uh, research paper. And they have to do a 15-minute mini uh, defense, a defense of their research. And so... Um, I love using the research protocol for that because over time, the kids are supposed to develop a list of about 40 sources. And if you tell them, I want you to get 40 sources, high school students are like, ah, no way. But if you just give them the research protocol and you say, I want you to collect five sources about your topic each week, and I want you to pull five interesting facts from that source, that's going to help you understand the literature around that. Then all of a sudden, that's much doable. You can come up with five sources in a week, and you can read five reviewed articles, peer-reviewed articles in a week, and you can summarize them fairly easily. So that really helped me turn this beast of a course into something that was really accessible for the kids. And what I kind of realized is I'm, I'm not going to teach the course again because I really think there's a developmental I'm not going to say delay, but it's not developmentally appropriate for high school kids because very few of them are sufficiently motivated, intrinsically motivated to work consistently a little bit every day on a project yeah. that lasts a year. They're more susceptible to the procrastination gene where they think they can whip it out at the end of the weekend and <laughs> do that's good enough. It's done. So, um, but what I have done is I've used that research and your protocol, which is essentially a glorified collaborative spreadsheet. And I've been able to use it in a number of ways when I'm teaching some sort of quantitative methods, they can divide it up and they can find studies that pertain to that method. And so I know they have a collection of studies that use regression analysis or factor analysis. Um, and then all sorts of qualitative um, research methods. Here's one that used computer anal uh, computer assisted text analysis. Here's one that was like case studies. So it, it helps for teaching them or reinforcing what different types of methods are used in academic research. Um, and I've also liked to kind of do what I call sequencing edu protocols, where if I give the students an edu protocol every day in class, on Monday they do the frayer, on Tuesday they do the mm -hmm. Iron Chef, on Wednesday they're conducting more research, on Thursday they're doing a cyber sandwich, and then on Friday they're recording the flip video that sums up everything they've learned. And what I find is they are much less likely to cheat than if I just said, okay, you spent a week on the Vietnam War. Now I want you to write a paper about the Vietnam War. <laughs> that they'll just go straight to chat GPT on. But if I have documentation, I have their Iron Chef, I have their Cyber Sandwich, I say, well, why aren't you using these sources? Because these are the sources you read earlier in the week and you're familiar with. Those are the sources I expect to see in your paper. And it, it kind of gives them the way to scaffold and I, I want to say not makes their learning visible, but makes their learning transferable so that they're still using what they learned Monday on Friday.
They're no, going back to, because it's a it's a visible learning artifact. They can go back to it. It's not like paper notes in the end bottom of your bottomless backpack. Hundred percent, and I love how it's scaffolded in those routines. Those you know, essentially thinking routines, edge protocols are basically, you know, they're the routines that you're doing every single day, but you're just, you know, changing the content weekly. So you're going to like the Vietnam War, World War II, or, you know, any really thing that you are studying, uh, whether it's a research method as well. I mean, I think they're, you know, that's what I love about these types of strategies. They're, I think they're content agnostic. They're all content agnostic. Yep. And um, it just makes them really easy to, um, you know, incorporate with students after, you know, a couple of weeks doing them, you know, you build the routine of how do you net do it um, each and every week. And um, it makes it really predictable and uh, shows the, you know, the learning and transfer over time. So um, that's why, why I really enjoy it. And I think that, um, you know, it's fantastic that you've kind of outlined it um, in a social studies context setting. So tell me a little bit about, um, over like what were some of your you know was it did you have struggles over the four, uh, first couple of years using these strategies or did you you know feel like once you started to you know build them into your classroom routines that they were you know pretty uh straightforward or did you you know um so what really I love, just you know work on these yeah what i love about the edu protocols is over time when the kids are used to them it kind of ramps up the teacher clarity like if they've done five number manias in your class over the course of a semester, they know what the number mania is. Um, if they've done five iron chefs, you don't have to explain the directions to them again. They know what they're doing. So I like that. And I like the fact that <clears throat> the, the lesson frame or the routine stays consistent, but the content is what changes. And so it, it has helped me concentrate on deeper content, more rigorous content and more meaningful content. And, you know, I'll just say you start off with, we're going to do a cyber sandwich with his five or no, we're going to do a number mania. That's just five facts about me how many schools I've worked at, how many jobs I've had, how many kids I have, whatever it is. It's just about me. And it's real easy for a kid to kind of brainstorm about that and come up with it. But now if I give you a big rigorous article on the Panama Canal and you have to pull out all these facts about 100,000 laborers getting paid 10 cents an hour, 40,000 people die building the canal. It takes 10 years. It costs this much money. Now students really have to think carefully about, okay, what are the most important numbers that I need to put on this infographic to tell the whole story of the building of the Panama Canal? And you can see the kids that just go into the reading real quick and they grab the first few numbers they have. Their infographic doesn't make any sense. Um, and usually that's like a two-day process. I give them the article to read and then the task to build the number mania, and they wind up checking the next day doing sort of a gallery walk or checking with a debriefing document where they highlight which numbers did you include, and then they can see the numbers that they didn't include. And then they have a little reflection about did it tell the whole story or was it just a little superficial hit? And so over time, you can build their competency and get them 
very good at telling a historical narrative with a beginning, middle, and end. And edu protocols are great for that. And then what happens too is they kind of feed into each other. Like once I've done number mania to tell a big story, uh, now all of a sudden I can introduce the hero's journey concept or character archetypes and have students identify the same type of character through different historical events. And that is one of the big problem areas with a push. Only 15% of the students that answer those questions answer them correctly. And it's making connections between different historical eras. And again, that goes back to the background issue. But if you have read, like right now, my students are reading, uh, first they killed my father about the Cambodian genocide. And they've met a whole bunch of people along the way as this woman is a young lady is trying to become free. Can they compare that to another book they read about the Holocaust? And can they compare those two genocides and can they characterize the savior, the hero, the mentor? Um, Can they make those connections with people? Because once they get the idea that this person is the love interest because, and they can cite evidence of it, they're going to be set up for success in any class, whether it's literature or humanities or even explaining relationships with with math. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of just, you know, tons of transferable skills that you're, you're doing just in that one example. So that's um, something that, you know, I really like how it essentially can be integrated across the curriculum because it's just a number of, you know, compare and contrast inferences, mm-hmm. um, citing evidence to those inferences, um, you know, learning about, you know, content and archetypes and um, characterization. So, I mean, there's so much there that is, um, you know, all really fantastic things that I, I believe that, uh, you know, students, regardless of whether they're in, you know, sixth grade going up to, you know, 12th grade, these are skills that they can build up over time to, um, you know, learn how to navigate the world that we live in. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how can they learn about your book and edu protocols that go along with it? So if they go to eduprotocols.com, they see all the books um, and they can click on the social studies edition and, uh, there is also a new EduProtocols community now called PlusEduProtocols.com, and that is a subscription service where uh, all of the authors do a TV show or a web show like this once a month. Uh, those are archived and available for people on demand. Typically, Adam Moeller and I, he was my co-author on um, the social studies book, and Adam is a great middle school teacher in Ohio that really knows how to motivate young, younger students, adolescents, and get them working. I don't really consider myself a history teacher. I'm more of a used car salesman. I just kind of trick them into reading and writing about anything. It doesn't have to be related to history. It can be history adjacent. Um, But Adam is a real history teacher and he follows the published standards and uh, takes his kids from the Revolutionary War to the Civil War every year. And um, John introduced us and said, oh, you're going to write this book with Adam. And I was a little skeptical because I'm kind of a short Napoleonic guy and I don't really like other people's ideas. 
uh, part of the reason why I failed as a screenwriter, because you need to collaborate in that medium. But um, Adam has been like a breath of fresh air. He's really uh, gifted at simplifying complex scenarios. And he just has a real gift for making history instruction as easy as possible for his middle school students. So the way I kind of talk about our book is uh, I overcomplicate things and then Adam simplifies things. And what <laughs> we do is each chapter is a different edu protocol and we have some samples from my class, my high school classes, and some samples from Adam's middle school classes. And that way teachers can say, oh, well, my students could probably do that. That looks easy. And so um, that, and that's what I think is one of the great things about the Edge of Protocols community is if you follow us on any hashtag on any social media, whether it's Jacob Carr or Jay Woz, uh, Wozniak, Josie Wozniak on TikTok, they're putting all their stuff with the hashtag Edge of Protocols. If you're on Instagram, there's Edge of Protocols teachers. If you're on Facebook, Kim Vogie, she's got like 8,000 teachers in her Facebook group. Um, and if you're on Twitter, you just follow any hashtag for any one of the edge protocols and you'll start seeing scores and scores of examples. So uh, John's very good at saying free lifetime tech support. And what what is really kind of you don't know when you're just one teacher at your one school in your tiny little isolated bubble. But there's a whole world of people out there that are using these things and most of them are incredibly talented, far better teachers than I would ever be. They're doing amazing things and they're posting them on the web so everybody can see them and everybody can learn from them. So just start looking for the Edge of Proto Protocols community and they'll find you. Yeah, uh, the, the online community and joining, uh, you know, professional networks online is it, it's so uh, such a huge benefit and can really just open up uh, your world and Edge Protocols is definitely that uh, community that uh, educators can go to uh, to see all that in action and to and to learn more. So as we all close out each episode, I always like to ask every guest, you know, what are you know based on what you're currently seeing in education, what are two to three tips you recommend educators to implement into their practice, regardless of their context, navigate. You know, currently where we're at, recording this episode, May twenty second of twenty twenty three, and then moving into the future. Right. So. Um, my first tip is whenever you're implementing something new, whether it's edu protocols or PBL or RTI or, you know, in education, we have a new buzzword every year and there's always something extra we got to do. You're doing SEL now, you're doing um, discipline committee now, whatever it is, it's being added to your to-do list. Uh, what I recommend when implementing edu protocols is you need to have two or three friends that are using them too. And they don't have to be at your school site. They could be online friends, but you need someone to say, I tried this cyber sandwich. This was a good example. This was a weak example. How do I give them feedback? And then you got to kind of practice doing that, I think, in a safe environment before you're ready to do it live in front without a net in front of, you know, real human children because they're kind of unforgiving. And if they sense any blood in the water, they're going to come after you. Well, why didn't I get a five? Why isn't this a four? Why isn't this a three? 
Um, so the thing I like about edge protocols is they don't necessarily need to be graded, but they're easy to grade. And it's easy to say, well, this is why this is an A and this is why this is a C. So uh, first tip, have a, have a buddy or two, a thought partner to kind of help clarify your ideas. And I'm very lucky that I have Adam, who's a wonderful thought partner um, and really is, is one of the most creative teachers, I think, working out there. Um, and then today I just put a little uh, shout out on Twitter because I'm, I'm playing around with a new Edu protocol that right now I'm calling Worth a Thousand Words. And I just wanted to see if I put a famous historical photo on the screen in my room, how long does it take students to figure out who took the picture of that and what's the historical context of it? And so today, within 10 minutes, 20 out of the 25 kids in my room found the author, found this photo from Vietnam called Burst of Joy, which is this prisoner of war coming home and his family's running to him as he's getting off the plane. It won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, it was a total farce. Uh, three days before that photo was taken, the guy's wife had asked for a divorce because she'd been having an affair while he was a POW and she'd totally spent $140,000 of his money and essentially destroyed their family life. But the photo looked great and it won a Pulitzer Prize and they're known for that. So um, I, I want to have my students really, because I think we're in this Instagram generation where they just believe photos. And what's the backstory? Was it manipulated? Uh, was it staged? You know, I want them to dig a little deeper and think a little deeper about that. So I'm, I'm seeking thought partners now for how, how do we create this as an edge protocol? What does it look like? And what I want students to do is do a little research. What was the context? How did the photo get legs and go viral? I'm thinking of the Iwo Jima photo. Um, you know, there, there's so many of them that ta have taken on a life of their own. And our, our students, I think they see them in the textbook, but they don't really explore and dive in deep and learn the backstory. I love that. I mean, that's, that, that's just fantastic, you know, going and finding your community and uh, thought partners. And then really when you're, you know, you're trying something new to have um, that group there with you to essentially provide you with feedback and kind of you know, show you a little bit what maybe they're doing with that similar type of strategy. So uh, that's really cool. I love just understanding the background story of the photo. And I'm sure that as you do that more, you'll have a lot more stories to share about it. So what's the best way that educators can follow you? So I'm on Twitter at Scott M. Petrie. Uh, I, when I first got on Twitter and I Googled myself, I noticed there was a Republican congressman from Pennsylvania also named Scott Petrie, and he kept popping up every time I would search for my Twitter handle. So I added the M, the middle initial, which is my mother's uh, maiden name, and um, I'm thrilled that now if you just type in Scott M. Petrie, you get me instead of the Republican guy from Pennsylvania, who's probably <laughs> very nice. But I did one time contact his office and I said, I will pay top dollar. I will make a donation. I want your signs that say reelect Petrie for assembly, you know, blah, blah, blah. They wouldn't sell me the signs. Uh, 
Oh man. <laughs> that would have been so cool to have in my class. So, so you can find me on Twitter at Scott and Petrie. I have a blog called history rewriter.com. Uh, and I publish semi-regularly on there just about my random thoughts, my, my classes, student work and things like that. And then, um, uh, you can reach me on Gmail, Scott M. Petrie at gmail.com. So. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, Scott's a must follow, uh, just his, his fascinating work that he's doing daily and he shares quite a bit. So I highly recommend it and definitely check out his book as well as other edge protocols. Uh, for those who want to check out other, um, episodes of podcasts, go to my website, matthewrose.com or check out, uh, navigate education, the podcast on all major podcast players. And you can follow me, the host, Matt Rhodes at Twitter. Um, at Matt Rhodes 1990. So until next time, everyone, thank you so much. And I hope that you try an edgy protocol uh, next time you're in your class. Have a good one, everyone.